All right, how about we all stand right now? We're going to uh, read scripture. If you guys have a Bible, why don't you open up to the book of First Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. We've been in a series now looking at the book of First Peter. We've actually been in this little segment of Peter for quite a while, what it feels like, at least two weeks, three weeks, uh, looking at the section. But I can assure you today is going to be the final day in which we will be looking at these two verses, and then we'll be moving on out of that, trust me, as we make our way through, and hopefully it'll all make sense. Uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, the big idea that I think Peter's really trying to focus on is this idea of goodness, uh, inviting God's people to live in a way that is practically good. Um, so I want to read First Peter chapter 2. We'll pick it up. Uh, I think we have on there verse 9, and then we'll kind of go into verses uh, 10 to 12. So uh, 9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles or the nations honorable, so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good deeds glorify God on the day of visitation. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for what you have spoken to us. We ask God right now for ears to hear and the ability to be able to see what you want for us to see and to learn and grow. We pray for hearts that are open and willing to embrace the truth of the gospel. And we pray these things right now in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So as I mentioned, uh, it was last week and the week before last, we kind of try to frame all of this because I think that's how Peter's doing it in this idea of like a revolution of goodness that Peter seems to be inviting followers of Jesus to live in a unique way that is not simply mirroring the culture at large. Again, to give a little bit of context, the Christians that were to whom he's writing, they were in incredible oppression. They were basically a marginalized people group that were being shoved off the margins. They were losing their jobs. In uh, today's parlance, they were being canceled uh, just broad and wide all the way up to the point where at some point, just a few short years after Peter would have written, many, many Christians would have been slaughtered, killed, thrown literally to the lions in the Colosseums and whatnot. And so they lived in this hostile environment where the big question was, how do we remain faithful to God and not become sellouts? How do we make sure that we don't simply assimilate into the culture? Because that's always the danger, is that when you have such hostility around you, is it's really easy to just kind of like go down on your witness. In other words, not talk about stuff. That might be controversial. And especially when it's in a hostile environment that's constantly uh, saying negative terms or connotations or ideas or threats or passive-aggressive threats against you, it's really easy to just somehow tone it all down. And Peter's saying, no, don't do that. But don't go overboard in the sense where you're going to just simply be rude and obnoxious to the culture. Don't do that either. Because there's a, there's a happy medium, and I think that's what Peter's trying to move into. And the, the, way, the happy medium that Peter lands on is, is do good. Live as types of people that do good to those that are basically doing evil. That's the invitation. Now again, Peter's framing all of this in the life of Jesus, because that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus went about, as we mentioned, I think it's like in... Uh, 
uh, Acts chapter 10. It says that Jesus went about doing good and healing all those that were sick and all those that were oppressed by demonic forces. And this is the lifestyle of Jesus. What he's inviting us into is living a lifestyle that reflects Jesus. This is a radically different Christianity that just basically says, learn the Bible, learn a bunch of facts and data and information about God, and then go out and battle people to the truth. Weaponize the Bible and attack people, clobber them over the head with the truth. That's, that's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is doing good. That's what Peter's inviting us into. And so that's the way I want for us to think about this. And what Peter wants us to understand is that there's at least three different like, categories that he's going to describe on a horizontal level that we have an identity or a role to play within culture at large. So again, to put this in the vertical sense, he essentially says in verses 9 through 10 that there, here's who you are on a vertical sense. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You belong to God. You have a place for uh, a place that you can call home. It's in the presence of God. This is where you belong. God knows your name. He knows the circumstances that you're going through. He loves you. That's what he wants for you to understand. But he also points out that at the same time, not only are you a citizen of heaven, but you also happen to be a citizen of you know, planet Earth or some government or some construct on this planet. And that's the horizontal relationship that he says. Now, again, number one, we'll be looking at the idea or the aspect of being foreigners. We'll explain what that means in a second. Secondly, he describes them as citizens. That's verses 13 through 17. And then the week after that, which is about two weeks from now, we'll be looking at the idea of being servants and what that plays out and how to do good. This is what Peter's trying to do. He's trying to say, do good in the name of Jesus in the construct of being foreigners and citizens and servants. How one does that, we will be unpacking that over the next few weeks. All right, next slide. I want to begin to jump in and take a look at some of these ideas. So again, as I mentioned, that this is sort of like a revolution of goodness, but in this first place, as foreigners. So what does it mean to be a foreigner? And this is the word that he uses there. Again, we just read it. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. What he says in verse 12, the one verse uh, just before that, he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's the big idea. What, what is a sojourner or an, and an exile? So he uses this word foreigner. The way that's translated here is foreigner. It's the word parakon, parak, paraokos, something like that, paraokos. And the two words is para, which means alongside. Oikos is the Greek word for house or household. And so the big idea is someone that lives in a house, that's, we call that home, their home. But a paraokos is someone that lives on the outside of the house. They feel like outsiders. So have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you're an outsider? You don't really fit in. You don't really quite belong. Um, and this is what Peter's saying, is that as followers of Jesus, though you live in the culture and you're surrounded by the culture, you are, for all intents and purposes, either servants of the Roman machine uh, or you are citizens within the Roman world schema. But the point of the matter is, he says, at the end of the day, you really are kind of outside. You're outside of that construct. You're foreigners. You're exiles living on the outside of this. So what he's wanting us to say, wanting us to understand is that as foreigners, the people living on the outside, uh, knowing clearly that you, even though you are on the outside of the culture at large, with regard to God, you are an insider. You've been given a place at the table. So the big idea is this, is that as you are comfortable, as you understand, as you live into the nature that God says of you, then you can begin to actually rightly 
do good in the broader culture around you. And that's, I think this is the, the, the connection that he's basically saying. Next slide, as we kind of begin to jump into this, what he begins to describe is the idea of how to not only protect the goodness that we're called to do, but also at the same time, how to display the goodness. So those are the two points that I really want to focus on and think about today. So verse 11, we'll be looking at the idea of goodness protected. And then secondly, verse 12, we'll be taking a look at the idea of being goodness displayed. What does that mean? And really, at the end of the day, why? Why, again, is he inviting us to display goodness, to protect goodness? Again, the bigger picture is, this is, a, this is uh, in essence, a... Um, a revolution of goodness. We're called to be people that do good, or goodness warriors, if you want to think of it that way. I love the fact that the men in this church had a unique opportunity to help out uh, a local neighbor, again, who doesn't even go to this church. We don't even know if she's a Christian, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. She's a human being. She bears the image of God. Like, we have a unique opportunity to shower her with goodness, and that's awesome to think. We can help her move. We can give her a gift card. Just all in the name of Jesus and goodness that Jesus represents. So what he's going to begin to describe is this idea of goodness being protected. So I'm going to go back into the verse. We'll just read it bit by bit, and we'll make some statements about each one of these things, and then we'll move on to the very next verse, and then we'll call it a day. All right, here we go. Verse 11. He starts off again by saying, beloved. Just pause right now and think about this phrase, beloved. Again, to whom is Peter writing? He's writing to people that share the same commonality with regard to being connected to Jesus. But he wants to remind them that it's not necessarily that he, be- he loves them. I mean, he does love them, of course. He describes them as that often. But I think he's trying to remind them that in the eyes of God, you are loved of God. Have you ever thought about that? How do you think of yourself in light of God? Again, some of us, I think, if we're really honest, we feel like, oh, in front of God, I'm disgusting. I'm shameful. I'm an annoyance. How do you think of yourself in the light of God? I mean, I think if we're really honest, a lot of us, we we struggle with knowing our place of belonging. We feel like we don't measure up. We feel as if somehow... God just basically barely puts up with us. Brothers and sisters, I I want you to hear very clearly, this is the good news of the gospel. That not because of anything you have done or earned or anything that you merited, God, by his own nature, loves you. You are beloved of God. That's good news. Because here's the flip side of this. Where else will you find that? Porn site? Instagram? Work? School? Where else will you discover this definition of you, beloved? Maybe home? Maybe? If you got a good mom and dad? But a lot of us come from broken families where even that's questionable? This is what's so amazing about this. This is what's so good about the good news is that in the construct of the gospel, good news, the kingdom of God, you are beloved of God. Not because of anything you did. Not because of how horribly you failed. But in spite of all of that, God, who is the good God, who loves, loves you. My encouragement to you is that if you wrestle with that, to receive that, because that, that's a gift to be received. You don't earn it, you don't buy it, you don't throw it on some money, you don't 
invest in it in that sense. You receive it. And this is what God offers. Beloved is a reminder of our identity. Secondly, he goes on to say, and he uses this phrase, abstain. Again, listen to the construct. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners, so as sojourners, abstain from the passion of the flesh which wage war against the soul. Now, I want to do something real quick, um, just by way of an offering a trigger warning, because I, I want to make a couple of statements real quick or address at least two false ideas I think grow out of this biblical vocabulary, next slide, of this concept of abstain. Abstain. I got to address kind of the elephant in the room here. Um, that this phrase, this word abstain, could be triggering for some. And here's how, at least in my anecdotal experience, I've found just by way of conversing with people over the years that this idea at least raises two things. Number one, from a religious level. And I think the notions are these, and I kind of tried my best to just frame it into a statement, and hopefully it'll make sense. Number one is a religious construct. The idea or this myth or this false idea is that Christians are only known by what they're against. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever even thought that? It's all that Christians are. They're only defined by what they're against. They're against this. They're against that. They're against anything that does not sound, feel, look like churchiness. They're against all of these things. That's what Christians are all about. In some ways, I think Christian subculture has created a world that that's kind of like that. I'll give you a perfect example of that. Throw so just again, not trying to pick on this, so just using it as an example that might be familiar to some of you. Uh, so throughout the '90s, there was a book, for example, that was called "I Kissed Dating Goodbye." Some of you might be familiar with that, and maybe might even be familiar with the author that had published that recently in the past few years, came out, recanted that, basically said it was a horrible book, should have never even written it, and now he's doing his best to try to undermine everything with regard to that. Maybe some of you have read that, and you kind of like framed your life around that. What that did is it kind of created a whole subculture, which is identified or known as a purity culture, which is the big idea of, you know, having a purity ring, and the big frame behind that is I'm, I'm never going to have sex. So it's, it's basically this construct of abstaining from sex. Now, in the right context, it's not necessarily a bad thing if it's rightly worded and rightly understood. But what it does, it can create a caricature that Christians are against sex. I got news for you. Christians are actually not against sex. God's not against sex, I should probably say. He's actually very pro-sex. That might be shocking for some of you. Very pro-sex in the right context. C.S. Lewis gave this analogy. He says it's kind of sex in our modern world, and he wrote, you know, a long time ago. In our modern world, it's kind of like eating. Like, eating is good. But what happens if you eat too much? It becomes bad. You gain extra LBs, and you start looking like not the way that you hoped that you envisioned yourself, you know, 13 years ago. And all of these things, they can lead to heart problems. It can lead to all forms of problems that go along with that, that complicate matters. But then he goes on and he says, well, what if you just eat and then you regurgitate, you throw up the food? It's, and his whole point is that food can be abused, just like sex can be abused. So no longer does food become a good thing. It becomes a bad thing. It becomes a source of brokenness. Not goodness, badness, divisiveness, brokenness. And so what happens, I think, within the Christian subcultures is sort of been this idea that Christians are against all of these things. But this is, again, it's a, it's a myth or it's a, it's a distortion of the truth. That Yes, there are things, of course, just like anything, Christians are against. 
Uh, but the fact of the matter is that it should not be what defines you. And let me just say this to you, that if you are a Christian or you've had an experience with Christian circles over your life, and that has been your number one takeaway, you walk away, the way that you would synthesize your experience with Christians is like, oh my gosh, they're the most like abstaining, angry, frustrated people that are just against all of these things. I just want to say to you, I'm sorry that that was your experience. Unfortunately, you had a run-in with human beings, not the living God. Because that's not, not, that's not how the living God re- represents himself. Jesus says, I've come to give life, and that more abundantly, to multiply life, not create this world where it's all about abstinence. Now, again, there are things to abstain from. But the second myth that I want to talk about is the secular myth. And I just kind of described it something like this. That it is when... Uh, here, I'll read it right here. It is only when one breaks off any and all religious constraints, tradition, scriptural mandates that oftentimes restrain the self and embrace their strongest desires, what would be described as your authentic self, will they truly be alive? So let me, let me re, recast this. It's the idea, and again, if, if you've been following anything about this modern movement today of embracing the authentic self, a lot of this actually stemmed from the 60s, which was the sexual revolution. Again, so if you know anything about the sexual revolution, uh, there was a book that was written back in the 30s that was actually titled The Sexual Revolution by, uh, I can't remember his name right now, it's elusive to me right now. But the point of the matter is, he wrote a book that was actually called The Sexual Revolution. That became basically the book that defined the 60s movement. And the big idea was this, is that there were religious restraints that were keeping people from living into their fullest authentic self. So if we cast off those restraints and embrace what is most deepest and felt, this is the key word, felt about us, and embrace that wholeheartedly while simultaneously throwing off anything that would restrain that might be the traditions that mom and dad gave me, that my youth pastor told me to do, from the book that I read, I could say goodbye, whatever the case is. If I embrace my deepest emotional self, casting off others, then I will fully live. And again, like I said, this is, this, is a, this is a myth because the concept all goes back to this idea of, of abstain. I'd say it would be a distortion of what is abstinence. What does it mean to abstain from something? And why does Peter say this? This is where it's, I, I think this gets really important. Because the point that Peter wants for us to understand, again, keep reading. He goes on to say, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. And this is the crucial element. Why does he tell us to do this? Because he says, in essence, if I can reword it, restate it, not all, de- not all desires or longings or instincts that you have are the most life-giving. In fact, some of them might even bind you and enslave you. So modern terminology, we would describe this as an addiction. Like, what what is an addiction? An addiction is oftentimes a good desire for something. Again, is drinking a sin? No, of course it's not. Jesus drank. But what happens if you love drink too much And that becomes something that you coddle and you love and you love the social aspect of it and your entire world gets reframed around that Then that becomes something that you love too much. And we know the addictive behavior of something like that because over time, rather than you being in control of that thing, that thing now begins to control you. What about 
sexual desires and urges. Again, if I think of anything, what the sexual revolution did, number one, A, it won. You, you need to know that. It won. The sexual revolution won. So Christians that are still trying to fight a cultural battle against the sexual revolution, just don't do that anymore. Preach Jesus. Love others. Demonstrate the gospel in good ways. Sexual revolution has taken seed within our world. The big question is, how do we now proceed? How do we live? The way I think that Peter is saying is do good even in the spite, while at the same time resist and fight and abstain from those desires that might be innate in you because, here's what he says, they actually wage war against the soul. So what happens if a sexual desire gets out of control? And rather than you controlling it, it begins to control you. There's a word for that in our culture today. No one really likes to be called that a pervert, but that's the fact. No one wants to live up to that terminology. But the fact of the matter is, this is what happens. These become language and terms that define someone that ultimately ends up giving themselves over to something that might be good at the beginning, but over time, that thing begins to exercise dominance and control and mastery over you. And so what Peter's saying is that, look, you guys, because by definition, what is a Christian? A Christian is one who's been set free, liberated. Not only from the consequences of such enslavement, but even the power of such enslavement. And here's what he's saying. Why go back to a yoke of bondage to something that you've been set free from? That's what he's saying here. Again, all of that to just simply say, this is exactly what he's trying to describe. So we, one of the Bible scholar translators said this, or interpreters or um, commentators describe it this way. He said, the word abstain is literally hold yourself back from fleshly lusts in our fallen world or in our fallen nature, whose power over which the believer has had its spell broken over them. That's the big idea. I mean, think of it this way. It's kind of like a chain smoker who had lived 40 years of their life just smoking over and over and over again, multiple packs a day, and knowing that they were literally, not only did they have emphysema, but they were on, this, on the verge of dying, and all of a sudden they stopped. Through intervention, through the abilities that were given to them, they stopped. Their nicotine patch, whatever it is, they stopped. They are free from the chains of addiction of smoking. And if someone were to say to them, hey, just you know, abstain from that thing, for them, that makes a whole lot of sense. Because in their mind, they'd be like, I don't want to go back to something that disallowed me to breathe and disallowed me to live life to its fullest. I don't want to go back to that thing. This is what Peter's saying. Because what he wants us to understand is that we're in a battle. There's a battle that's at stake right here, right now, in this world. And that battle is to destroy and crush our soul. The word soul literally is just the word psyche. It's the literal Greek word psyche. It's the word that would define you. It's you, who you are. What he's saying is that there are things, there are vices in this world right now that might not necessarily be straight up evil. They're good, but good in a disproportionate way can oftentimes lead to an enslavement. And once you become a slave to that thing, you're no longer in control. That thing is in control. That urge, that desire is now in control. It has you, and you begin to be shaped according to its likeness. And what the gospel does, Jesus comes and he sets us free. He says, you have a new, you have a new master. I'm your master now. I'll lead you. I'll guide you. I won't oppress you. I won't crush you. I'll liberate you. I won't hate on you or judge you or guilt you or shame you. I will bear your shame. I will love you. You are beloved of God. That's the big idea. The gospel is the most liberating thing possible. 
And so what he goes on to say in the very next thing is he wants us to not only see goodness as being something that we protect, but also, secondly, goodness that is to be displayed. I'm done here. Goodness displayed. Listen to verse 12. He goes on to say, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. The word Gentile can just simply mean nation or people that are not necessarily within that family or the community or flock, if you would, of those that have followed Jesus. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak of you against you as evildoers, they may by your good deeds glorify God on the day of visitation. So a couple of things here. Number one is the idea is he's just saying, look, it's basically what Jesus said. Let your light so shine before men so that when they see your good deeds, it will glorify God. It's basically what Peter's saying is that the world, the greatest apologetic that you can give is your life. That seems to be what he's saying. Now, again, learning how to defend the faith and communicate the faith and share your faith, all of that's important. But what's even more important What's even more important, because you can be somebody that's really good and adept at winning all the arguments and weaponizing the Bible and against people that you disagree with, and yet your life is lived in such a way where it does not harmonize or resonate with that of Jesus. And at some point, like what Paul would say, is that your life is like this big banging gong. It just makes noise. And the whole point I think Peter is saying is that Live in such a way so that when people, even though they might hate you and despise you and have caricatures about who you are and misconceptions and misportrayals of how you live and how you actually think, that by your good deeds, by your acts of kindness and goodness, they might actually at some point step back and be like, you know what? I treated them horribly, but they were so kind to me. Has it ever happened to you? Have you ever had people in your life? I mean, it could... I, Immediately comes to my mind, I can think of people like, I, I used to wait tables. And, and there was a time, I mean, if you've ever worked in the service industry, you know how difficult it is. People are horrible. You guys need to know that. Number one, people are horrible. Step number one. Um, and, and, and it's funny because people can come. In fact, I'm not going to get into this whole, like, you know, diatribe against it. But the fact of the matter is, especially Christians can be really, really, really bad. They tip horribly. If you're that person, please stop. Please stop. Please learn how to be generous with your money. Because, look, if you go to a restaurant, you pray before, or you leave a tract, and you don't leave a really exceptionally, profoundly good big tip, you're a banging gong. So don't, don't do that. But the point that I would make is this, is that I, I've, I found that there were times that I would show up at work, and when I'm in a good headspace, when I was in a good headspace as a Christian, I would be like, you know what? People are grumpy, they're not happy, their life is miserable, they're miserable, they kick their dog, they yell at their spouse, whatever it is. They come in and then they want me to basically serve them in, in subhuman type ways. But I'm not going to let them have that on me. I'm going to treat them with kindness. I'm going to beat them to the punch and make sure that their water is filled. Even before they ask me that their water is filled, I'm going to make sure their dirty dishes are cleared from the table even before they even ask me these things. And not because I want a big tip, because a lot of times that doesn't even work. But the point of the matter is... My, my hope would be that by being good, by a revolution of goodness, people might see your good deeds and glorify God. And last thing I'll end on this is he says, on the day of visitation. Um, again, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, as we briefly touched on this, that there's a couple of different ways in which this verse can be interpreted. What I want to think about is I, I think what Peter's saying and suggesting is that there, is a, there will come a day when all human beings will stand before God, God's visitation. We will stand before this God. Now, if you think of it this way, God 
created all things. At least according to the biblical narrative that we see, that we believe, that God created all things. That means that every single thing, tangible, intangible, visible, invisible, was created by God. The very air that you just breathed in, that you inhaled, was created by God. The very fact that you have lungs that are able to process that oxygen and break it down and spread it throughout your entire system was a gift of God. And the very God that gave you all that stuff, one day we'll stand before him. It's the day of his visitation. You need to know this. Because many of us, we just live our lives as if that day will never come. And so we go through life trivializing everything, minimalizing everything, reducing everything to nothing more than an experience or an encounter or an interaction with some form of new enticement. And that is to some degree of our lives. Until, until something strikes that just rouses us from our slumber and our sleep. Yes, our culture is consistently telling us, untether yourself from the past, from the tradition, from what grandma told you, because it's all wrong. The only thing that's truest about you is what you feel about yourself. Okay, let's run with that drug and take that as long as it gives us life. And then it stops. And then what? So we untether ourselves. Are we really free? Or are we actually in a free fall? We unroot ourselves. Are we really, truly, profoundly living our highest level, most realized self? Or are we fully isolated from home? And this is what Peter's saying, is that there will come a day where we will stand before this God on the day of visitation, and the hope would be that if you are a follower of Jesus, you live in such a way that all people see your life, and they see the goodness, the revolution of goodness that you're a part of, and they glorify God. I'm going to finish with a thought, because some of you guys know that Friday morning, a biker was driving by and died. Right here. Some of you walked up and you saw a white bike out there. Right there. He didn't know that morning. That was going to be his last morning. Alive. I mean, in some ways, it's traumatizing. Even just thinking about it. I watched the video footage that we have in our building that was given to the cops to help them assess and process and figure out, reconstruct what happened. It's traumatizing. But the fact of the matter is, I'm not saying this in any way to, like, create fear or generate some form of emotion or emotionalism. I get it. A lot of times pastors love to use stories like this as, like, weaponized, like, a response. I don't care about that. What I do care about is that at least truth. I pray that we would be people of truth, that truth becomes what we long for, we live for, we put forth, we align our lives according to, even if we don't feel that morning like the truth resonates deeply with me, we still align ourselves around the truth. The truth is that we will one day stand before this God and give an account of what Peter's saying. All of us. And if you're a follower of Jesus, live in such a way so that the world around you would bear witness to the testimony that we've lived of goodness of this good God. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, or maybe you've been raised in a Christian construct or mindset, or if you've known something about God, but you've, you've kind of been more or less on, on a fence, 
on the one hand, you're embracing loosely this concept or construct of Christianity or the claims of Jesus. But on the other hand, there's like this deep longing and desire to live and to engage and to uh, embrace something that's out there. It's elusive. And my hope would be today you would at least see the goodness of God that was put forth through Jesus and that you'd run to that. That that would be the story, the narrative, the truest narrative in this universe that you would give yourself to. So I'm going to finish. As we close, Dan will come up. He'll lead us in a song. We'll partake of communion together. How about we all stand? And I want to invite you, wherever you're at, in your understanding of who God is. If you're a follower of Jesus, then use this as a moment to celebrate God's goodness over you. If you are maybe not a Christian this morning, or maybe, again, been on the fence playing around with some thoughts of curiosity, which, again, I'm so glad you're here. My hope would be that you would run to Jesus. And if you're here and you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, I would love to pray for you. So during the song or even after the message, just come grab me. We'll have some of our leaders and elders available right up at the front right here afterwards just to chat with you if you need any prayer. But let me pray right now, and let's respond in worship, and then we'll partake of communion together. And by the way, communion is in the front, so if you would like to come get it, like as opposed to out in the parking lot, we would have people bring it to you. Here, you get to go out of your seat, go grab a cup, and then return. So we have stations right up here, two stations in the back, maybe three in the back. So go ahead and grab that if you would like, and then we'll partake together, and we'll call it a day. Jesus, thank you for your great love. We need you, Father. God, just take us wherever we're at, no matter how raw we are, how broken we are, how joyful we are, how excited about life we are, how depressed we are about life. Whether we're feeling burden-free or completely burdened, meet us right here.